Salam and hello everyone, it's Lily. Before we get started, let me just talk to you from my heart. I am not an expert on politics or conflict, but I am somebody who really cares deeply about the human rights of anybody who's having to navigate these really difficult times. So before we get started, I just want to offer my prayers and my love for those of you who are living through conflict in Ethiopia, in Sudan, in Congo, in Mali, and elsewhere across this beloved continent of ours. For the families in Israel who have lost loved ones or are waiting for the return of hostages since October 7th's brutal attack by Hamas, my heart and my prayers are with you. For the Palestinian community that is watching this devastation happen again in their land and who are suffering the absolute devastating loss of precious lives, of land, of home, my thoughts and my prayers remain with you always. I hope this episode will be a tool and a resource for all of you who are listening. And as always, salam, peace. So I think we have to always remind ourselves that, you know, the greatest injustices don't happen spontaneously. They happen because there is a creeping narrative that is created that gives license to the kind of violence that will follow um, and that we can't wait for that to happen. And this is why, you know, really having the sense of moral outrage at this point in terms of the looming genocide, and actually the question will be, I think, for the International Criminal Court, is whether a genocide has already happened. Because I think if you've reached 7,000 people in just about just over two weeks, the question is, have we not reached that threshold now? Salam and hello everyone. My name is Lily Bekala Piper and as always we are so grateful to have you with us today. I want to read you something before I start today's episode. This was written by a colleague, Mamka, about the current conflict in Israel and Palestine. And I just want to read it as it's written and then we'll get going. Justice. What is justice? For you who values justice, who genuinely aspires to creating a just world? How do you determine how to feel, what to think, what to fight for when chaos reigns, when emotions run high, when the news cycle feeds whatever specific fears appeal to you? Whether the news tells the truth, the whole truth, parts of the truth, or blatant untruths. In such times, I try to place myself behind the veil of ignorance a tool for moral reasoning conceptualized by the philosopher John Rawls. It asks quite simply, what would you consider a just world if you didn't know who you'd be when you were born? If you didn't know where in the world you'd be born, which gender, race, or religion you'd be born into, what financial, physical, or intellectual resources you would have. If you knew none of these things before entering the world and you had a good chance of being who you are today as whoever you think is most different from you, how would you design a moral society? Mamka's article in Medium from which I just read um, came to me about two weeks ago, just as the conflict in Israel and Palestine was beginning to just break our hearts. And I haven't been able to move from her words ever since. Here at Salam and Hello, you know that our core values are joy and justice. And we really do our best to live that out in the stories and the conversations that we bring to you. 
the voices that we amplify, the people that we engage with. We really do our best to do that. This work is a show in progress, just as I am. And we have been talking about the conflict in the Middle East as a team and really wrestling over what do we say at a moment like this? How do we be fully authentic, fully ourselves, fully true to what we know to be right and wrong? And how do we talk about this in a way that doesn't isolate or add to the noise that often feels is filling up our news feeds and our ears and our homes on a daily basis? Most importantly, how do we hold on to our humanity? How do we acknowledge the incredible pain and suffering that is happening again? And at the same time, we love this place. Kenya, East Africa, the continent is our home. And none of us are blind to the fact that we have been suffering in many different ways across this continent for generations, just as they have in the Middle East. And at moments like this, when we look and see how conflict is escalating and how many, many lives are being lost, we can't help but also look to the left and to the right. And we remember our loved ones across the border in Ethiopia, in Sudan, in Congo, in the DRC, in Mali, Rwanda. I mean, it doesn't end, who are equally suffering. And yet somehow maybe the eyes of the world are not looking at them anymore. So let me continue Mamka's question about what is just by asking each and every one of us to also consider what is humane and who are we in this moment? Who do we want to be? Who in a few years when we look back at this moment will we be proud to say that we were? I'm thinking so much about each and every one of you listeners who entrust us with your time and with your thinking and I'm also wondering how you are. How are you today? How are you feeling? How are you coping? One of the things that I have been sitting with as a mother, as a communicator, as a friend, a daughter, is how heavy and hard this motion is, this moment is. Last night, I was at my niece's birthday party. And all of us there were fully focused on her and the joy that she is to us. And of course, we all go home and we open our phones and we look at it and we see that Israel has started a ground raid and our hearts are broken again. And I'm constantly wrestling with this idea of, can I be happy? Can I justify a birthday party? Can I justify a celebration while another mother somewhere is grieving the loss of her child or the loss of her home or the loss of her country? It is a constant state of tension that we live in. And I think there's something really sacred about grief. There's something sacred about collective and shared grief. And I worry sometimes that when we go to have hard conversations like the ones that we're having around Palestine and their right to self-determination, we are losing our humanity. We are getting caught up in the noise and the stress of what people think on social media instead of picking up the phone and calling a friend or sitting down to tea or chai with somebody we trust and asking, how are you and what do we do now? So as a team, that's actually what we've been doing. We've been talking to each other. We've had different takes on what's happening. We've had different life experiences that have informed our views and very much inform how we show up at this moment. Some of my team members have direct relatives that are being affected by the conflicts that I've already mentioned. And as I start to talk about Israel and Palestine with them, the question then becomes, well, what about, what about, what about? And it's a fair and good question that we have to sit in. So today, listeners, in this conversation, I'm not going to be giving you more information that you don't already have or can't already find. That's not actually my objective. My producer, Becky, asked me, you know, what is your intention with today's conversation? 
And I had to really sit with that and think, what is my intention? What do I want at the end of this conversation for you to feel? And I think what I want us to feel is more humane and more connected and more able to have hard conversations. Um, those hard conversations are the only way through. We can't get around these moments. Our only option is to go through them with the grace and with the humanity and with the thoughtfulness that we would want if we didn't know where we would be born when we came into this world and what we would want for a just and moral society for ourselves, for our children, for the next generation. So we're recording this episode on Thursday, October 26th. So by the time it airs, the political situation in any of these places may have changed. It may not be as it was today. So we are doing our best with humility, with courage, with a slowing downness, if I can use that word, of our thoughts, of our pacing, to really engage deeply with the issues that are really touching our world. So we are not perfect, but we hope that you'll invite us in to have this conversation with you and that you will take the opportunity to sit with us as we wrestle with the questions that I think many of us are sitting with today. And before I introduce my guest, let me just add one last thing, which is I just offer a prayer of peace to each and every person who may be listening to this conversation from a corner, a closet, a table, a car where you don't feel safe. I just want to say that our prayers are with you. We do not take this work lightly. We do not take the privilege of your trust lightly. So we offer our solidarity with you. Um, and thank you for trusting us with your time. So let me introduce my friend today, who to many of you is known, hopefully as a friend, but also probably a political leader and thinker whom you can trust at moments like this. Urungu Houghton is executive director of Amnesty International Kenya. He is somebody that I look to often when things get cloudy in the news, when tensions are rising. He is somebody I trust, and I'm grateful that I can also call him a friend. Urungu's work in Amnesty manifests itself in many different ways. He leads a team of investigators and colleagues who are committed to protecting the Constitution and the right for each person in Kenya to access their rights that are embodied in that document. He's a weekly columnist for The Standard. He was just telling me he's amassed over 300 articles, so you can find his thinking and his thoughts online in many different places. And that weekly column is one of the pieces that I read in trying to prepare for today's conversation. I encourage you to do the same. He's also author of a book that I've given away to many people because I really believe in the premise that he's operating on. His book, Dialogue and Dissent, Kenya, A Constitution in Search of a Country, came out a few years ago before our own elections here in Kenya last year, and I think was a guiding reminder for us of what could be, what could be for all of us if we engage with dialogue and dissent in a way that honors our humanity and what we want for this place that we call home. So Urungu, thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm. Thank you for who you are for so many Kenyans. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Look forward to this. So, Urungu, I got a chance to prep you on the questions, but mm -hmm. I just want to acknowledge again that this is not an easy conversation to have. Mm -hmm. So thank you for being willing to sit across the chair from me. I really do feel like I'm talking to a friend and not just an expert mm -hmm. on human rights yeah. at this moment. And, you know, I think it's, it's important for us to acknowledge what's happening in Israel and Palestine mm -hmm. again, that there is tremendous loss of life. The data today from the um, Gaza Health Ministry is that over 6,500 Palestinians have been killed. 2,704 of them are children. Over 17,000 people have been wounded. 
1,400 Israelis have been killed and over 5,400 wounded. And this narrative, we can't escape since October 7th. It's filling our news feeds. It's filling everything we're thinking about. And yet we are residents of Kenya. We, mm -hmm. This is our home. And in the last year, we have seen the tremendous costs that conflict has had in DRC, in Ethiopia, and Sudan. So as Africanist, Urungu, let mm -hmm. me start there. What are the stories that we need to be paying attention to that may not be getting the world's attention right now? Mm -hmm. So there are a number of, uh, um, I guess, uh, conflicts that uh, we need to be paying attention to and the aftermath of conflicts. I mean, I think if we, many of us are, you know, were horrified by um, the violence that we saw in Sudan and the um, tensions between the two um, military formations. And uh, the fact of the matter is that the context has not changed dramatically for the people who've had to flee their homes. Uh, many of them uh, now in places like Egypt and uh, within the region, there are people who are still unsafe and, um, you know, at risk inside Sudan. So that's one country that that, um, you know, has gone silent and has been knocked off our international media headlines, not just by uh, Palestine and Israel, but also by Ukraine and Russia. Um, uh, the Congo, for example, uh, a few weeks back, we heard of uh, up to 50 people who were uh, massacred in broad daylight um, simply for organizing a protest. And the response of the international community was, was very weak to that. And when I say international community, I mean also African governments, the African Union as well. Um, we've seen coups, uh, no less than seven or eight coups in West Africa. And um, essentially what we're beginning to see is states that have become unstable, that are no longer accountable, but perhaps even more pernicious is the um, growing feeling among uh, civilians or among citizens that actually the idea of the democratic project, the, the idea of a democratically elected government, mm -hmm. that that is somehow not African anymore and that we should just expect um, the latest autocrat to come in and take over. So I think the you know, the, the democratic project, the, the social justice project is really at risk in many countries across Africa. And unfortunately, it doesn't get the same amount of attention. Yeah, and, you know, and, and we certainly are not trying to say this is more important than that. But yeah. I think we are rooted here. And I think as this conflict begins to, again, not only take the headlines now, but probably for the foreseeable future, we are at risk of forgetting. I think the fact that some of the data that's coming out right now across the continent the African Center for Strategic Studies says that they estimate about 40 million people have been forcibly displaced within the mm -hmm. continent this year. World Vision reports that 282 million people across the continent will go hungry. We mm -hmm. here in Kenya are very familiar with that. And that is a rise since 2019. So the, the, the data is alarming, and I appreciate you mm -hmm. highlighting for us where we also need to be paying attention. So at Amnesty, you know, you have limited resources and time. A day has 24 hours. Mm. So when you look at all these conflicts, including what's happening in the Middle East, and I know you are rooted in Kenya, how do you begin to make a human rights agenda or human mm. rights priorities given the very mm. many places where your attention is needed? I mean, the first um, thing is to recognize that um, even if amnesty was to multiply itself by a thousand times, it still would not be a match for the level of human rights violations. So therefore the first recognition is actually we need to create movements. And we need to create movements that are bigger than amnesty, that have their own sense of gravity, their own leadership, and their own sense of values and commitment to creating, you know, uh, societies that work, societies that are compassionate mm -hmm. and accepting and inclusive, right? So that's the first thing. Um, so the strategy is not so much the issues, it's really creating the, the base of a society that's able to protect mm -hmm. itself. Um, the second um, area really has been, you know, looking at how we back uh, human rights defenders. And we have a phrase we call back the brave. 
Um, but one of the priorities for Amnesty is really looking for those human rights defenders, whether they be defending, you know, uh, the rights of human beings or whether they are protecting the environment or the wildlife or uh, climate warriors. I mean, essentially anybody who stands in the public interest um, needs to be protected at this time, regardless of which constitutional order they have in their countries. Um, increasingly now we are uh, looking at issues of economic and social rights. Um, many African governments um, have overborrowed and therefore are now indebted to either the Chinese or the European Union particularly. And therefore, you know, in the case of Kenya, something like seven in every dollar, seven in every ten dollars goes to paying back loans. Um, and we are in Kenya on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, Ghana has already defaulted. Uh, Kenya is probably one of the next countries if uh, nothing dramatic happens in the next six months. So we have to think about what it means for education, for health, um, particularly emergency healthcare. We have to think a little bit about what does it mean for security sector reform. Um, because if you have officers, police officers, if I could just take that example, if you have police officers that are not properly supported in terms of well-being and trauma, um, the likelihood is they will get more violent in their mm -hmm. relationship with uh, civilians. And um if you have hospitals and medical centers without drugs, then literally what you have is buildings um, that will become mortuaries um, and, um, you know, uh, grave, sites, uh, grave sites if um, we're not able to equip them properly and support the health workers. So I think this is the other area that we began to look a little bit more at is how do we make sure that governments prioritize that which is really important to their populations. And uh, with that will come, you know, uh, a challenge of corruption, a challenge against impunity and abuse of office. Uh, so that's mm -hmm. really been our focus over the last year or so. Can I push you a little bit sure. on some of the, the issues you raised there? Because one of the things in particular that's coming out of Palestine and Israel is the amount of children yeah. who have been victims, innocent victims to this tremendous tragedy. When you're looking at all of that, is there ever a moment where you say, actually, we have to stop this and immediately shift our focus, our energy in this direction because of the grave nature of of a current you know conflict that's picking up. Yeah, I mean the the Palestine since October the seventh, um, the our focus within Amnesty Kenya has probably shifted on some days to so at least thirty percent of our attention is on Palestine at the moment, mm. um, and some days it's you know fifty percent, and you know there's a Sunday just recently where it was a hundred percent, right? Yeah. So I think you know we have to respond um, where we think it's necessary, and I think there are a number of different responses required. You know, Kenya is a sovereign state; it is part of the United Nations. Um, it has a vote, uh, the General Assembly. It used to be on the UN Security Council. The question for us as Kenyans and those of us in Kenya is what. What is Kenya's foreign policy with regards to what's happening in Palestine? What is the position that we're taking on the uh, targeting, the mass targeting of civilians? And like you say, many of them children. Um, what is our position on the blockade and uh, the bombing of Gaza? What is our position on the historical injustices of an apartheid state um, that is very familiar to us as Kenyans and uh, the rest of um, you know Africa that went through settler colonialism? What is our position on these issues? I think that's one of the, um, uh, I guess, the moral imperatives of this time. Yeah. So let's just stay with Palestine. I was yeah. going to ask you about that a little bit more later, but let's let's just continue on that theme. You know, if you were somebody who was waking up on October 8th mm -hmm. to this news of what has happened on the 7th, and you were not following closely before mm -hmm. the conflict happening in the Middle East. Could you isolate, and this is a very unfair question, so I acknowledge that now, but could you isolate maybe two things that you think are most salient in order to understand the roots of what we see happening right now? Yeah. 
So I think, you know, first of all, if I can just talk about some of the myths, you know, sure. just two or three myths. One one myth, of course, is it's a religious war. The second is that um, essentially Hamas is, um, uh, you know, some wild, uh, violent uh, armed group that um, is exploiting uh, divisions between the Palestinians and the uh, Israelis. And the third one is that it doesn't matter to us. It's too far away. Um, all these three are really just myths. And um, for those people who um, had not been paying close attention, what I think is really important for them to get is that we have, you know, several decades of systematic um, oppression of the Palestinian people. Um, the um, equivalent, I guess, would be the equivalent of apartheid South Africa, where you have segregated people on the basis of their identity. You have declared that one um, identity is a second class, if not third class citizen, and uh, refused to give them um, identity cards, uh, the capacity to be able to travel, the um, resources that they need in terms of health, education, and, and, and water. And that what you have then done on top of that is really balkanize the land that was set aside and was agreed at the level of the UN um, uh, several years ago. I mean, the Oslo Accords of 1967 are really important for this moment because that's the point at which the international community and the Palestinians and the Israelis agreed that they would be a two-state solution to this. Palestine would have their state and Israel would have their state. Mm -hmm. And those were viable options. Um, increasingly over the last you know, uh, few decades, what you've seen is... Um, Israel um, promoting um, settler expansion into Palestinian lands um, at the barrel of a gun, right? So it's not willing buyer, willing seller. You're talking about... There's no equity in this no, conversation. And, you know, as I say, many Africans um, are very familiar with that. Here in Kenya, the, the highlands were essentially the settler, um, you know, I think they used to call it the Happy Valley at some point, but the mm -hmm. highlands and uh, the Rift Valley were really the um, points of interest for the settler community. And they just kept pushing um, Kenyans um, into these reserves and concentration camps, um, which essentially just led to an armed rebellion. Um, and I think, you know, anybody who has not read the history needs to understand that what you have is a history of injustice and structural injustice. Um, something like about 70% um, of all Palestinians are refugees, right? It's not often known this, you know. Um, something like about 40% of all the Palestinians who are in Israeli jails are under the age of 18. Um, many of them have been processed without due you know, without due process. They've not had the opportunity of lawyers. They've not had uh, a, a fair trial. Uh, many of them are in detention. And that's that's really the injustice that is behind the explosion that we see at the moment. Mm. Thank you for that, Ingo. I mean, mm. I started off in my intro saying, you know, I'm not an expert, mm. but there are people who are, and there are mm. a lot of resources people can be going to. And I hope in this moment of fast and furious, you know, posting on social media that people are actually slowing down right. to read, right. to understand. And you're right, it's important for us to appreciate in the continent why this moment matters outside right. of the continent, because there are the echoes of what we have experienced here. So let's continue to kind of understand this, this continued tie between the continent and people, particularly Black people in Palestine. Mm -hmm. There are many governments and organizations that represent Africans, that represent Black Americans, who are showing solidarity with Palestinians. Give us a bit more of a sense of why or why that matters. Why is this tie between, you know, movements around Black lives mm. and the Palestinian movement linked? No, we know from our ancestors the um, leadership of people like um, Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King, um, you know, uh, Dedan Kimadi, the, 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 the refrain that runs through all of their um, 
you know, legacies is essentially this argument that it is, you know, no one is safe unless we are all safe, that uh, where you leave a gap for injustice, particularly systematic um, structural violence against, a per, uh, against people on the basis of identity, that that, that violence in some ways has a way of creeping back mm. and, and attacking everybody. So I think, you know, we as global citizens have a responsibility to care at this moment. Mm. And it's not a matter of creating a ranking exercise between a Congolese life um, and a Sudanese life and a Palestinian life and an Israeli life. I think we have to say that, you know, universally human beings matter and they must be protected, particularly against military uh, aggression. Mm, absolutely. When we think about the military aggression in this situation in Palestine, we have to think about how that manifests across the continent as well. I think, again, we're all familiar with the, let me choose my words carefully, interference might be the right word, or presence of international actors when conflict arises here on the continent. So I find just as a person who cares about the continent, who's lived in the West for a long time, I'm constantly wrestling with this feeling of, we don't need the West here. We don't need the North here. We can handle our own conflicts ourselves. Then at the same breath, I might be like, but why is nobody paying attention to what's mm. happening in Ethiopia? Why have now have the international actors gone silent or why have they forgotten our plate? Particularly if I look at media sources, when you look at kind of, you take that 30,000 view of, of the, the landscape, what do you think is a right sized shape or role for the North in the continent? Yeah. So I, I, as you're speaking, I was uh, remembering uh, Mahatma Gandhi's comment is that if you are ever in any doubt at what to do in any particular crisis, look for look for the person that is the most oppressed, wretched and marginalized and look at the world from their eyes. I think for a Palestinian child in Gaza at the moment, they don't have a hierarchy of who should come and save them. They don't have a hierarchy of who should provide humanitarian services, who should speak on their behalf, who should protect them. I think for them, they just want protection. And therefore, in moments like this, I think we have to demand that all players, all people who can play a role in this, uh, stopping the violence, that they have to play that role. And therefore, we have messages for the United States uh, government, we have message for the Israeli government, we have message of the Kenyan government, and we have message for ourselves. Um, and I think that I found myself, um, you know, being relieved of the tension between, you know, is too much intervention um, too much? Is, is there not enough? I think the question is, how do you stop the conflict? And at the same time, not replace um, the not 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 secure peace and not deal with the historical injustice that are there at the same time. So yeah. I think it's not peace at any cost at this time. What we have to demand in the case of Palestine is a, uh, you know, a resolution to the uh, historical injustice that's been there, which essentially has been to undermine a two-state solution very consciously and um, in full glare of the international community. I mean, for Africa, I think the, um, you know, I'm all in favor of African solutions for African, um, you know, problems. And I think it is important that we build the consciousness within our people that are able to compel their governments to do the right thing um, always. Um, and at the same time, I think we have a legitimate argument based on historical um, relationships to, to hold former colonial powers accountable to the kind of societies that we want to build. Um, and that, that that's our choice. And they are essentially can either be allies or they can be blockers in that and we hold them accountable. So if we think about now the continent, dig down deeper into what you've mentioned, um, you know, we hear in, in Kenya, the inflation is, is out of control. Mm. 
we are seeing the impact, you know, across our, our livelihoods. When we think about the conflict in the continent, what's happening in Ethiopia, what's happening in Sudan, what's happening beyond those borders, you know, what are the implications for the average Kenyan? Um, mm. How are we, what can we expect if these things are not resolved? So we're already beginning to see uh, economic distress across thousands, if not millions of uh, Kenyan households. We're seeing people um, beginning to make choices that require them to do less. Um, the roads are much more quieter now because mm -hmm. of the cost of fuel. We are seeing people um, deciding not to have three meals a day. Um, we are seeing people beginning to choose between medication or school fees. Um, and these are all real concerns that, uh, you know, people will raise. I think we can expect also uh, rising levels of petty crimes. Um, economic distress um, will lead to um, more criminal activity. Mm. Um, and uh, it will also lead to more restlessness in the, the society. And will that will come with more demonstrations and protests. So as Amnesty International, we are beginning to look at how do we support people to be able to demonstrate, to find ways of vocalizing their concerns about what's happening in the economy in a manner which is nonviolent and is not violently attacked by police officers. So I think this is one of the scenarios that are out there. But I think the other one, which perhaps is a little bit more uh, hopeful, is that... Um, you know, we saw over a thousand memoranda uh, deposited at the um, National uh, Ministry of Finance. Um, that's probably the highest number of memoranda that have been brought to the attention of government on a, on a finance bill. Mm. Um, so there is a growing alertness and a growing concern, particularly among the middle class, that rather than being this complacent um you know, a class that privatizes everything that doesn't work publicly, um, that they need to start getting interested in public governance. And um, that I think is a is a positive. That is that is a positive. I hope we hear more about what that mm. means for for all of us. I want to talk about information, social media, disinformation, all of that, how we are finding out about these kind of either positive news or or less than. So when, when a conflict first arises, or there is, even you mentioned this trade agreement, you know, mm. where are you getting your information as a Rungohauten? Mm. Where are you looking for a trusted, reliable voice at moments like this? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's like like everybody, we're all struggling, right? Um, so um, within Amnesty International, and if I just give the example of Palestine at the moment, we have three tensions uh, which are live and um, kicking within the movement. So I'm on a conference call with um, uh, directors from all over the world uh, every two days, um, basically checking, um, uh, you know, evidence, checking um, the kind of messages that we need to put out. And we've, we have got three tensions, essentially. One is um, responding quick enough to catch the news cycle, because essentially it's a fast moving context. So it's not so much trying to get headlines, but it's trying to remain relevant to the levels of abuse and violations that are taking place vis-a-vis um, uh, checking, you know, being sure that what we're saying is evidentially backed. Um, and of course, we, you know, we all struggled with that moment when the um, hospital was attacked, mm -hmm. uh, was attacked in Gaza. And uh, there was a moment there where, you know, we were all trying to figure out what, what are the allegations, what are the misallegations and which are, what's the truth of what happened. So that's one tension. The second tension is really around, um, doing no harm, essentially not speaking in a manner in which we inflame passions, um, uh, if, if that is possible, because <laughs> passions are extremely high at the moment. And then the last one really is thinking about um, how do we support people to be able to protest uh, non-violently uh, wherever they are. So these are the kind of the considerations that are there. Specifically, um, 
I look at all sources. I look at uh, pro-Israeli sources. So I do read, you know, the Israeli Defense Force comments. I look at uh, Netanyahu's comments. Um, and then I look at Hamas and I look at um, the Palestinian Authority and I look at the Turkish and I look at the... So in a sense, you have to triangulate the information. I think what we know uh, from Chinamanda is that really there's no single story for the... There's no single narrative. There's no yeah. single story on this. Um, and then you have to use your principles and your judgment. Right. And more importantly, perhaps, is your sense of moral compass. Like at a time like this, what is our responsibility? Um, um, and, and, and it's no different from the kind of conversations that happened in the civil rights movement or in the national liberation movement in Mozambique and um, the kind of things that were happening in Cape Verde and places like that. So, there, you know, humanity has been here before. Um, and the people that distinguish themselves are the ones that actually took a stand on the basis of principle and value rather than expediency and safety. Thank you for that, Aaron. That's a really thoughtful and, and, and broad reaching answer. I think I take so many things from what you said, including we have been here before. We need to look back because that can tell us actually where we're going very quickly. And the triangulation of information and, mm. and applying your own values and principles you know, you don't have to be an expert to know what feels right and what feels wrong. Yeah. You don't have to be an expert. Your, your gut will do that, right? Your gut will do that. I was mm. thinking about today, just again, I was so nervous coming into this conversation. Mm. I didn't want to misspeak. I didn't want to get something wrong. Mm. I didn't want to get the data. I mean, honestly, I barely slept last night just mm. feeling anxious about this moment. And I thought this morning, what am I an expert in that I can speak to? And I honestly mm. thought the only thing I'm an expert in is loving other people and loving right. my children, loving my partner, having a family. Like that, I feel like <laughs> I've done that long enough. Maybe I can call myself an expert there. And if that is true, then I can feel a great deal of humanity and grief in this moment and the need to apply that moral compass to what I read. Mm. Um, and that has actually been a help for me in these few short hours since I woke up <laughs> with that question. So thank you for saying that. I think mm. we can't emphasize that enough. Mm. Do not rely on your friend's Instagram post mm. or the latest you know, algorithm to feed you what's true. Right. Check yourself. Right. Check yourself. Um, and we might find a lot more humanity there. So speaking of humanity, I do want to talk about the language that we're using in this mm. moment. Um, you know, we've seen language weaponized. We've seen grief weaponized during this conflict. And I'm thinking in particular of Israeli's defense minister who referred to Palestinians as human animals. Arunga, what is the danger of language like that in a moment of conflict? You know, why is it important that we don't become desensitized mm. to somebody's talking point at a press conference? Mm. Why is that irrelevant? Why is that relevant? Excuse me. It's it's highly relevant because um, you know these are position these are people with in positions of tremendous power and influence. I mean, his words don't just sit in the air for the for the period of time that they're spoken, but they are actually picked and broadcast across billions of people, um, and they are the sounding uh, call. You know, they they are the call um, to the faithful in in the case of Israel um, to essentially see uh, Palestinians as animals, and that's why I think it's so important. Um, you know, when. Uh, the uh, if I can just use another example, when the German, uh, the 25 German, largely men, sat in um, this place in uh, just outside of Berlin to design the final solution, uh, and it's it's a it's a very powerful movie. Um, I forget the name of the the town that's there, but it's in English. It's the conference is the movie, and they've reenacted what it was like. 25 men sat in a room and designed the final solution, and. Um, their their conversation led to the deaths of probably about 7 million people. And that conversation was very sanitary. 
It was mm. very tactical. It was very judge, uh, what do you call it, very um, tempered with uh, the costs of, you know, gas versus bullets, the um, distance that you'd have to take people in order to bury their bodies or uh, how many people could you get in a mass grave. I mean, that's the, that's the kind of thing. So I think what we have to remember is that it didn't take millions of uh, Germans to kill millions of Jews. It took 25 people in a room. And you know how long they spent? They spent less than three hours to design that process, right? Um, for about 15 or 20 government offices um, with these uh, very senior, uh, led by the Gestapo. So I think we have to always remind ourselves that, you know, the greatest injustices don't happen spontaneously. They happen because there is a creeping narrative that is created that gives license to the kind of violence that will follow um, and that we can't wait for that to happen. And this is why, you know, really having the sense of moral outrage at this point in terms of the looming genocide, and actually the question will be, I think, for the International Criminal Court, is whether a genocide has already happened. Because I think if you've reached 7,000 people in just about just over two weeks, the question is, have we not reached that threshold now? Um, are we not beyond the idea of a, a conflict? Thank you for that, Arungu. Just, mm. um, yeah, it's it's hard to actually move on from what you've said into the other questions I have because I'm mm. constantly just going back and sitting with the heaviness of now do we need to reach 7,000 people before right. we call something a genocide? Isn't yeah. 100 people well, enough? Isn't the 50 you people Bill in Congo Clinton enough? Conversations, you know? yes. like what's the number, right? Yes. But I think on the heaviness side, I think it is a, it is a moment to grieve and it is a moment to, to just sit in the, in, in the humanity that have been lost mm. in this period. I think it's also a moment for action. So I think the challenge for us is not to get paralyzed. Um, and if it is possible to grieve and act at the same time, um, to do what we need to do to essentially acknowledge that humanity is at a very low moment in this period um, and that it will get worse if we get paralyzed, if we switch off the televisions. Because mm. I'm sure, you know, two weeks, um, in fact, uh, you know, the Kenyan intelligence um, once told me that um, the average, uh, you know, kind of, uh, historical uh, memory of Kenyans is actually five days and that if you don't keep something in front of them for five days um, they will soon forget it and move on and of course that was really before social media took up so I, I suspect it's even shorter now so there are among us people even watching this um, who probably have put us into the uh, you know in, uh, on uh, you know, in the background and are doing other things now and really not thinking about what's the implications of this conversation for who they are who we are and what action we could take together and i think that's the that's the essence of the humanity at this time is not simply um to grieve but it's it's to grieve and take action because Absolutely. you know the paralysis will not save lives mm -hmm. um you know, it, it, it allows us to emotionally, um, I guess, re, you know, find some composure and that's important. But actually there are people who are not at this moment thinking about emotional composure. They're actually fighting for their lives. Absolutely. Yeah. And it goes back to why I thought I have to just be an expert on humanity that just that, that, that will hopefully carry, carry yeah. us. So Runga, let's, let's just say, how can people get involved? How can they act? Yeah. What would you recommend to somebody who is, maybe they would say, I'm just a teacher, I'm just a student, I'm just a whatever, right. they'd fill in the blank. 
What would you say to them? You can do this. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there are a number of things people can do. One is self-educate, um, read um, deep in your understanding of the historical context, um, identify um, points of pressure, um, share that information with um, family, friends, school, um, you know, school children and uh, fellow teachers. Um, I think it's important at this time to be signing petitions. I think it's important to be organizing vigils and really beginning to do something that builds a momentum. And um, I always remember back in 2008 and um, uh, Kenya was just on the brink of the post-election violence. And I was um, living alone and um, watching the television and I was completely paralyzed by the um, scenes from all over the country of um, Kenyans attacking each other on the basis of ethnicity. Mm. And I remember sitting and if I can be very honest, I was, I was lying in bed looking at this and I just didn't have a sense of agency. I was just like, my heart was broken. Um, and there was this phone call that came through the first time. And um, a woman by the name of Pat said to me, Irungo, when are we meeting? And I said, uh, I'll call you back. You know, I need to think this through. Um, and then she called back an hour later and says, Irungo, when are we meeting? And I said, okay, let's meet at four o'clock. And I suggested we meet at an NGO uh, that worked on peace and uh, reconciliation. I hadn't even called them to say we were coming. <laughs> and uh, I said, we're meeting at four o'clock and we'll meet there. And then the next um, couple of hours, I just spent texting people and phoning people. And 60 of us met at four o'clock in a space of about four or five hours. Um, and out of that came a program of work that basically brought the violence down um, that lobbied uh, the uh, leaders of the political parties and, um, you know, went as far as uh, the Right Honorable Raila Odinga, um, the President Mwai Baki, and a whole movement developed around this, literally from that moment, if I look mm. back. And I think the thing we always have to remember um, is that we don't have to be perfect. We, we need to give each other the grace and the space to say the wrong words, to yeah. acknowledge that actually we haven't been intentional intentionally following what's been happening in Palestine. And therefore we are catching up um, and we will make mistakes. And um, the mistakes um, will give us the, the platform in which to take act new actions, right? Um, as somebody once told me, you know, human beings never fail, right? It's only our actions that fail. Mm. Um, and if you, if you make that distinction, it always gives you the opportunity to take new actions, right? Um, yeah. You know, and, that, and great sports people know that, right? They go into boxing rings they go into tennis courts they 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 take action they go on to running i mean this is a good one for the kenyans you know <laughs> we go on to running um you know what do you call it uh, uh tracks and um you don't know if you're going to win right and you don't know whether your your lungs will hold out you don't know if your head will be clear enough and you don't know what's happening on the other side with the other runners right um, but you play the game right and um you didn't fail because you didn't win um, you can now watch the playback and actually figure out how did the other person win and what is it that you didn't do that you could now do. And I think that's what we need to introduce um, to a way of being, not just on big complex issues like this, but even the small crises in our lives that actually we never fail, right? Um, mm. We always have the opportunity to correct things. Um, and that will give us the grace and the space to be able to do something that would leave us with memories that we can be proud of several years from now. Like I stood up. I mean, if you talk yeah. to, you know, people who stood against the Vietnam War, who stood against the British colonial, uh, colonial occupation of Kenya, they will tell you those were the best parts of their lives. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So we have an opportunity to be that now. Absolutely. Don't waste it. Thank you for that. My, my friend Osman wrote a piece in Medium that actually propelled me to start <laughs> 
thinking about how do I address this through my platform? And one mm-hmm. of the questions he asked in his article that I found so profound, and I, and I actually have it here because I want to read the word for word and give him credit for his thoughtfulness. But he says, try every day or every month, try and solve for who you want to be and be seen as for the next generation yeah. in full honesty, without ego and full clarity. Yeah, great. Such a powerful yeah, way to great. think about it. And, and I will take your advice and pick mm-hmm. up the phone today and mm-hmm. think about what, who can I call and what can I do? Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Let's Ingo. meet at four o'clock. Let's meet at four <laughs> o'clock. <laughs> and 60 will come. Oh, I tell you, it will. Absolutely. So as we just wind down, let me ask mm-hmm. you two last questions. One, when you, when we you know, we've, we've touched on very heavy, hard things mm-hmm. that people who dedicate their lives to these issues have not been able to solve. So mm-hmm. we acknowledge that there is, this is just our attempt to engage in a meaningful way. But Arunga, what did I not ask you? What was missing from this conversation mm-hmm. maybe that I should have leaned into more or you would like now to take the time to, to acknowledge and recognize? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the the most important, um, you know, one of the other questions that we could have asked, um, uh, and really, really for the people watching, uh, questions for every all of us, really, is you know who do we want to be remembered for in this moment? Um, and coming from a, you know, a clarity that what we do in this lifetime, it it resonates in the next, right? And um, you know, the the scale of humanity is such that you know most people will not remember. Um, you know, the things that we pride ourselves, the everyday things that we pride ourselves, you know, whether it be the uh, furniture that we have or whether it be the car that we drive or the house that we live in, that all of that really doesn't doesn't translate beyond us very well. And if it does, we pass it on to our children and they keep it for another generation. But typically by the third and fourth generation, all of that is gone. Um, what is left really, I think, is what kind of a name you left and what legacy um, you left around the issues that really mattered that were big issues, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm not minimizing, you know, the, the power of motherhood or the power of fatherhood, um, you know, it, that also is important. But I think there are ways that we can serve both professionally, personally, and I think, you know, in terms of active citizenship that can leave an impact that really would give people things to talk about two or three generations from now. And I think the question I'm always asking myself is, is, am I doing the things today that would leave people inspired in another generation? You know, and if not, how do I get bolder and more audacious in terms of those actions? Uh, because it's, that's what really matters, you know, um, if you think about it intergenerationally. And then the second one is really um, thinking about, you know, the younger generation, the people who are in the either the um, Gen Zs or the Alphas, and um, how do they find their purpose quickly? How do they find a sense of, you know, joy and justice, as you said, that is internalized, that cannot really be extinguished by external circumstances. Um, and then the rest of their lives is really about applying those principles, those values to the everyday life that they have. Um, and uh, I think, you know, literally, as we say, it's not so much what you say you're doing, it's what you do that will leave people inspired to do things for themselves. So on that note, mm-hmm. we always ask our guests before they leave us, what is bringing you joy today? Ah. 
So my joy is my grandchildren, if I'm doing a very personal thing. And um, she, uh, one of my grandchildren uh, this week um, was um, uh, dancing to a Bollywood uh, movie. And um, <laughs> given that she's uh, Muembu and has never been to um, uh, India, I thought it was pretty impressive. Um, so really the ability to be able to look beyond your own culture and identify with the joy of another culture and the music and the drama and so on, I think is, is what I was present to there. I'm also present to the um, the massive demonstrations that are taking place all over the world um, to the Israeli Jews who are saying not in our name to the uh, Palestinians who are saying you know we need justice at this time to the journalists and the medical workers that are in Gaza who every morning go to work and not know whether they will come home and find their whole family has been wiped out as we've been seeing more recently you know um, that level of courage is just you know it's just all or, you know, or I'm just struck, oh, yeah. awestruck by that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's just breathtaking. Um, and, um, you know, I think that we all have an opportunity to play a role. Thank you for playing your role today on Salam Ho. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you for being a leader and someone we can trust. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Rungu. Thank you. Uh, listeners, we are grateful again for your trust. And I'm sure this conversation may have stirred some things for you. We would love to hear from you, lily at salamandhello.com, or you can reach us on our socials. We're now only on Instagram and TikTok. I'm embarrassed to say TikTok on a day like today, but you can reach us there at salam and hello. We would love to hear from you. As I have mentioned in the conversation today, I quoted uh, two different friends and colleagues, Mamka and Osman's words, because sometimes I think at moments like this, we turn to the words of people whose lives feel bigger than us. And Arunga has rightly placed uh, Dr. King, Malcolm X, Mahatma Gandhi into the conversation, rightly so. But sometimes it can feel like they are inaccessible to us, and I, I can feel that way. So I'm going to link uh, Osman's and Mamka's articles in the show notes so you can see it. I'll also link Arungu's op-ed that he wrote last week so you can see that. Again, this was recorded October 26, so the uh, situation may have shifted by the time this comes to you. But I hope that wherever you are, you are leaning hard into the humanity which we all carry, and that that will inform how you act, what you say, what you do, that you'll pick up the phone, that you'll take an action to create a place that we all want to be and certainly a place that's better for the generation that follows us. So until we see each other again, I wish you my salamtas, my peace, my prayers are with each and every one of you. See you next week. Until then we say, say,